Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. You always hope that these iconic figures that you see on the screen uh, are uh, as decent and honorable and forthright uh, as you hope they would be. That is the case with Tom Hanks, who I sat down with last week for my CNN version of The Axe Files. Here is the full conversation, and you can see for yourself. Tom Hanks, great to be with you. I, I really, what's interesting to me is how, does, uh, how do you become Tom Hanks? How does Tom Hanks become Tom Hanks? Because I did a little reading about your life. I mean, people look at you, you're warm, you're, uh, you're, you're garrulous, you're kind of an American icon, and they say, well, he must have grown up with Ward and June Cleaver. I mean, he must be like with Wally and the Beaver. Your childhood wasn't like that. No, my no. We my parents. Uh, the, the joke is they pioneered the marriage dissolution laws for the state of California. <laughs> you know, it's my dad, Janet Amos, and Zsa Zsa Gabor all had a lot of uh, divorces between the <laughs> between them. Uh, but I, uh, I I can't. It's funny. Well, I have I have three siblings. Um, I'm the third kid of four, and we all have different takes on you know. Uh, the environment that we grew up in, uh, and and mine was is that other than it being confusing sometimes, and otherwise it being having a you know parents who weren't anxious to tell us what was going on in the world, um, I didn't. I kind of thought it was an adventure. I thought you know, the you know we moved. Uh, I had ten different. I had ten different homes by the time I was ten years old. And I thought that is that, confusing. Yeah, yeah, but I thought it was kind of cool. I lived in a my you know I had a bunch of step siblings. Uh, we lived in apartments. We lived uh, almost like on quasi farms. We lived in the outskirts of towns. We lived in the middle of towns. Um, uh, Different schools. Uh, yeah, yeah. I I went to, you know, I went to a, a one one kindergarten, a first grade, then a second grade, and a third, then a fourth. Third, fourth, fifth. Yeah, we, yeah, but I wasn't intimidated. You, I guess a type A garrulous personality, as you say. I, I was able to size up what was going on pretty quick and some degree of, you know, a good sense of humor and some degree of confidence and a great amount of adopted independence, I think. Uh, if, uh, if I was going to say there was a problem there, I tra- traveled emotionally light, Mm-hmm. Meaning, I didn't. I didn't take a lot of the burdens of of that confusion along with me. The older and, kids maybe did a little more. Well, I think just because they were older and they had experienced uh, experienced more of it. But by the you know uh, by the time I was ten, I thought it was kind of cool to have lived in as many different places um, that I that I lived in. And then you know we were. It's funny. I lived in one house. 
until I was um, 14, so 10 to 14. And that was the longest I had lived anywhere, <laughs> you know, four years in one place. And then we started moving again every year. I read somewhere you described yourself in school as, as a nerd, a spaz, painfully shy. Well, uh, they, I was... Those aren't words that people associate with That's you. what I said? Yeah. Uh, uh, I was... There was... There, there's a... I was at combat, I think, with the reality of the home environment. I was, uh, other than this brief period of time when uh, we lived, my dad was not married, and it was just uh, of the four of us, my dad, my older brother, and my older sister. Your dad was a cook. Right? He, was, he was in the restaurant business, cook. yeah. Um, in the re- he was a chef, cook, ran the place uh, a lot of times. Outside for two and a half years where we sort of lived alone, I was not necessarily anxious to get home. Because there was an unspoken tension uh, in the house. There was, there was always something that was not being said, um, like how long we're going to live there or you know, how, how good you know, uh, dad and uh, his wife are getting, <laughs> getting along. Uh, so I think the combat I had was, was a liveliness and a distraction um, that was built on you know, hanging out with other people and you know, staying, staying busy and uh, sort of like being in the entertainment business without realizing I was in the entertainment business. Well, when did you realize that you wanted to entertain? When did the acting bug? Uh, I, was always a, I was always a guy who shouted out wisecracks during the slideshow, uh, you know, at school. But when I was in, was, I was in high school and uh, had that, well, what are you going to do? What do you take in high school? Uh, biology, uh, government world history. What are you going to do? I ran the track team for a while with absolutely no enthusiasm whatsoever. But then when uh, a friend of mine was, was in the school play, and I, and I, just, I saw him do this, and I just said, Where's, what's this racket? You, you're telling me we can come and do this here? I thought it was only for parks department stuff, or maybe, you know, <laughs> yeah. in, in the church group you might put on, you know, skits and stuff like that. And, and when I realized it was a, uh, when I found out there was a classroom that had a stage in it, and you could take more than one class, and it wasn't babysitting. We had the, you know, I've, I've spoken about my teacher there, a guy named Raleigh Farnsworth, who was a man of the theater, and that's what we did. So discovering that was, well, this was just more fun than fun is. Beats the hell out of every other class I'm taking there. It was, act, it was actually kind of a lot like a class in which the same skills uh, were required of it than was to hang around at lunchtime and, uh, you know, and try to entertain the girls. And what about it particularly? What about acting? I mean, it seems to me, I mean, I admire, you're the best of the best, but uh, anyone who can inhabit a character and become someone else. Well, I, I, I don't, I, I, I was just doing purely on instinct, but the instinct was to throw myself into it totally. Um, when when I was in a play or when I was performing, it 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 took up every moment of my day and every every brain cell. I was always thinking about um, what I was going to do or how what how uh, you know between learning the lines and and the excitement of just being there and getting ready to go on. Um, it was uh, just I, I think there are people who who are actors and there are people who are not, never will be. I just am one of those that was not was not uh, uh, self-conscious about it, uh, was really sort of like champing at the bit in order to go be a part of something. What about the reaction to it? Uh, did you, you must, there must have been some thrill associated with 
Uh, being entertain, entertaining people. Well, there was there was it, there was just the excitement of knowing that anybody had shown up specifically to watch what you are in, and that that division between the the proscenium the audience was very powerful. Whether they liked you or not, I mean, if they laughed, you know, like it was in, in like South Pacific or something like yeah. that. That was really exciting. But I also had the same exact thrill of when I was a stage manager of the shows because we were a part of this magic thing that was hidden from them. But you could hear them. You could feel the heat of an audience. You could la- actually feel the focus of their eyeballs on you. And if, if they started reacting in a way to something that you were doing, well, that's just, David, that's crack cocaine. It's crack <laughs> cocaine. Did you, uh, and, and you must have found a community then with people who you were acting with, working with, crews, and I so would on. say I found it. I found the tribe um, uh, that I think every person needs to belong to, that every person needs to seek out. There's, you know, there were, there was, there were people at church that were great. There were people that, uh, that were, you know, populated the individual classes. There were people that I got along with. But I, I felt as though I, I had, you know, a secret tattoo or, you know, the shared same DNA with the people that were in the drama department. And when I went off to college, I didn't realize that even there, I was, I was playing, I thought there were some other tester rules. I didn't realize that the theater or dramatics was a discipline that you could pursue. I thought it was just something you instinctively did, you know, to hang out with funny people and, and have a gas. And uh, after, you know, three years of doing that, I realized, oh, you, I can major in this. And I might be able to get a job as a follow spot operator or as a stage carpenter or as a stage manager. And that's kind of how you started out, right? When you yeah. were uh, in Ohio, you, you were really crew. That we were, we were hired in order to change the sets over. And we were, those of us who were paid made about 48 bucks a week. Those of us who were not paid, thank you very much, uh, did it for the professional experience. Because it was professional actors and we were in rep, rotating rep. And we were giving parts, small parts, and you know, you carried a spear. Or I played Reynaldo in Hamlet, which is a part that's always cut for, for good reasons. <laughs> but in the course of that, you know, the, there were some people who were given more uh, responsibilities. And... Uh, between the company saving money by p- paying an intern 50 bucks a week as opposed to paying an equity actor you know, $250 a week. That was the difference between um, having the experience and, and not. And I did that. I only did that you, for... You already were married. You had a kid at that point. Right? I was not married, but yeah. My, my son had been born, uh, and uh, uh, for the three years, by the time we got married, he was two, uh, and I had made the move... Uh, I had a card in my wallet that said I was a professional actor. And the, 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 the great friends I had, other members of the tribe said, you don't go back to Sacramento, California. You go to New York. Well, shouldn't I go to Minneapolis? No. Shouldn't I go to Kansas? No. Should I go to Chicago? No one's here from Chicago. You come to New York. And that's what I did. And I had a kid. And uh, I had, uh, we got married uh, uh, when, I, when I was there, and uh, it was horrifying and scary. Um, but you make your peace with that kind of... Uh, New York was a very different place in 1977, 78. Yeah. You make your peace with that. That was in Son of Sam times uh, there. We had that. Yeah. We, it was kind of like walking, in, walking into Scorsese's taxi drivers, <laughs> is what it was. Um, but 
I viewed it as, as you know, I think, as you're, as you're figuring out this stuff, you have these vibrant, you know, you were talking about, you know, when you were doing, you know, local elections. Mm-hmm. You can't imagine doing anything else. And, right. And the combat, uh, the battle comes in the daily, uh, the daily seeking of, uh, of purchase, you know. There were days you woke up, you had nothing to do. Nothing. There were no auditions. Maybe you could get together. Did you have to work on other stuff to just to support yourself? No. Uh, luckily, I I had made just enough cash money in order to pay enough of the rent, and I because uh, I was a professional actor, I was on unemployment. So I had twenty five weeks of of salary and twenty five weeks of minimum unemployment payments. And that was just enough to, to eke out uh, a living. And was there any point where you just said, damn, I'm good. I, no. I, can, I no. can really do this. No. Um, here's what I thought. Um, and we actually talked about this, uh, all of us young you know, Turks that were, that were out doing it at the same time. I said, look, we are as good as 50% of the people. We're, no, excuse me. Let's go back. This is what we said. We said, we are better than 50% of the people in any audition. Just better. That's, that's a level of cockiness that goes mm-hmm. on. They're fine, they're good. We're better. I am just as good as 40% of, of the people. Just as good. I can't touch the remaining 10% because they're geniuses. <laughs> and they just do stuff. They're on a, another astral plane. So the odds... Were there people who you remember from that time who were in that category who went on to become... Uh, everybody who had a job <laughs> that, you know, that I didn't have. Um, they, uh, no, because I didn't, I didn't view myself as being in competition with, uh, with the likes of them because they had the jobs and they didn't even have to audition. It was a, literally, it was like an odds process. Mm-hmm. So, 50, so you, the odds are better if you think you're better than 50%. That's confidence. The odds are still kind of in your favor if you think you're as good as the 40%. So timing ended up being everything. They need a guy my age with my voice and my hair and my eyes and my, my build. If they need that, I've got really, I've got better than 40% odds. And this was all auditions for stage roles. Stage roles. I never could get a... I I auditioned for one Maxwell House coffee commercial, but I didn't know what the process was. So they kept saying, uh, slate it. I'm sorry? Slate it. (laughs) What? Slate? I don't understand. Slate what? (laughs) Say your name. (laughs) I remember that coming. Oh, all right. I didn't get that job. No, uh, this was. And so all, you didn't. You weren't thinking that you know, someday I'm going to be like a mega oh, movie star. God, no! I was hoping someday I could, you know, move into a better crappy apartment. <laughs> and that's that's all you're going for. No, the I will say the 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 thing I had in my pocket that uh, uh, was an advantage was complete obliviousness to any other possibility other than, gee, I hope I can get this job doing. Uh, uh, high button shoes at the Zanesville Playhouse over the summertime because it's going to pay close to two hundred eighty bucks a week. I can make that. I can stretch that. I, I want to ask you about another passion that you developed in your childhood. You you just uh, released a book, a great book of short stories called Uncommon Type. There is a story in that book called The Past Is Important to Us, oh, yeah. which is a great great book about time travel, but. Uh, it struck me, uh, just thinking about your career and your story, that 
the past is important to you, that you are very focused on history, uh, and you know, you obviously you're very focused on the history of World War II, uh, the history of, uh, of the 60s. What attracted you to that? When did you start down that road? When I started reading for pleasure, my, I, 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 I don't know if it's I don't know if it's proper to say this, but I had a very vivid imagination in all other respects of school pursuit. I was, you know, I was I, in the theater. I was, quote, unquote, an actor. That's a, that, that is a lot of making things up that have to be rooted somehow in a concrete reality. So I read nonfiction because it really happened. I read non. I mean, even if it was books like Leon Uris, who wrote like Armageddon or Mila 18 or Exodus Trinity, you know, or uh, Arthur Haley, who wrote about hotels and airports and, and uh, car manufacturing. I read a lot, read a lot of uh, biographies and autobiographies because that was better than anything that you could possibly make up. I lived in a makeup, uh, in a, in a, not, make in a world. fiction world, yeah. make, a make believe world. Um, and so I was not profoundly moved uh, by an awful lot of novels unless they were set in some brand of concrete reality. Mm-hmm. And that's always been my, my interest in reading. I, re- I still read about World War II for pleasure and the space program. And uh, there's a couple of really great books that came out of, uh, that are in, in there about the 1939 World's Fair. Yes, you, you describe it in extraordinary detail. There. Yeah, you can get some good maps of, uh, of, uh, of what was there. But here, here, because I believe, and I have seen over and over again, is that vanity of vanity, all is vanity, nothing new is under the sun. Human behavior has demonstrated itself in a cyclical manner uh, in the form of history. And when, you, when, you re- when you're not involved in the nostalgia of a period, but in the human behavior of a period, it all folds right into what you and I are going through today. Yeah, well, let's talk about that. Well, first of all, what, what, what about that World War II uh, experience, generation? You know, I remember, we're about the same age. I remember when John F. Kennedy came to a little housing development where I grew up in New York uh, to campaign in 1960. I was a little boy. Uh, and thinking back at it, this was a housing development for returning war veterans. Mm. And everyone there had just experienced this of everyone coming together to repel fascism, defend democracy. And there was a sense that anything was possible, Mm -hmm. that you could overcome any obstacle. Uh, And I assume that's part of what attracts you to that generation. There was a paradox that I was aware of from a very early age, is that there were two versions of the war. One was the movie war. Uh, the TV war, that, that ongoing mythic celebration of what the myth was with the right kind of music and the right kind of triumph and maps and stuff like that. But then there was the other one that was displayed by every single caregiver, every adult that was in, in my world, uh, which was they talked about the war um, in very personal terms. Their lives, in fact, were divided up into three very specific acts. Before the war, when he talked about life before the war, <clears throat> their, their lives were simple. Um, their lives were also dangerous because they could get, you died of pneumonia before mm-hmm. World War II. You could have a tooth abscess that could kill you. There was a real difference between having 10 cents in the, in, the, in the cookie jar and having 45 cents in the cookie jar because 
That was an entire meal for a family of four, 45 cents. That was before the war. And when they say, well, you know, of course, that was before the war, because during the war was this huge cranial shift of their vision of the world, how big it was, how tight it was, and the forces that were out there that effectively altered their daily lives. If it wasn't literally leaving your, my dad left his, and his brother left their Willows, California, which is just a, you know, a farm community that could be anywhere in America, and they went to the South Pacific. How, how does a farm kid get from the South Pacific? So geographically it altered, and from the moment the war began, really say 1939, to VE Day in 1945, there was no clue as to how long it was going to last. Their lives were in absolute stasis for, let's just say, six years. Yeah. And for, to go through that for six years, that, that's an extraordinary uh, acceptance of a brand of fate that you have no control over. You might die. You might never get back. You might, it might be 1952, and guess what? You're still trying to take Saipan or liberate the Netherlands. You capture a little of this in the story. Yeah, there's Christmas a, Eve. Christmas 19, Eve, 1953. 53, which really gives you a yeah. flavor of what you're talking so about. So seeing these grown-ups talk about it in ways, but because they're no longer, they weren't old folks talking about it. They were young folks talking about it. I, I always had this sense of those years as being a, a, a predominantly weighted time for them in which... Fate was, they, they had no control over their lives. They had to wait for him. And they talked about it. Well, of course, that was during the war when there were no answers to any questions. And then after the war, of course, it was like, we're here and we share that burden with uh, so many other people. There's no reason to talk about it too much because everybody right. has, speaks the same common language. And yet it did create a sense of community in that that was one common element that sort of brought everybody from all parts of the country uh, together. My dad had skills that he never would have had um, because of the war. Mm-hmm. He, had, he became a machinist, so he learned hydraulics and, and stuff like that. Um, but he also had that grander world vision of, uh, of places, uh, that where he go, and sites that he had seen. I, it's, I, I actually have you know, an example of, uh, of his VE uh, mail, um, that he's writing a letter to his mom that says absolutely nothing other than, here I am, I'm not in the place I was before, I'm at a different place <laughs> now, and some guys down there are talking and going to uh, taking a rocket to the moon, but I don't think there's any Japs on the moon, so I don't think we'll go there anyway. Write to you next time. And that's, the, you know, and that's, that's a letter. That, that, that type of um, both isolation at the same time of transportation that goes along, um, it's, uh, it, it affected them all. It affected, it affected the people that I was closest to. Your, uh, your work, not just your uh, acting work, but your uh, documentary work, some of the stories in this book, sort of capture, it's, it's almost uh, the, the, in sepia tones, uh, that generation, that era. Uh, how does it compare to where we are today? You said earlier that there are lessons that you can draw from history. Well, I, we are... There are times, I think, when we have a national consciousness of permanence uh, and other times of great uh, tra- um, uh, transience, where we feel as though there are times of, hey, things are going good, and all of our institutions are working according to the contract that we have with them, and our popular culture is reflecting back to us a, um, a contentment and uh, a sense of accomplishment. 
uh, certainly in the early 1960s, that was an awful lot of what what was on TV and was in the movies and yeah. the nature of what we uh, what we heard uh, in all of popular culture. And right now, that I think the the consensus is is that those social contracts have all been broken. That we are often uh, lied to. That we are often kept from uh, kept from knowledge. And then there is uh, there's a reason to be outraged. And there is a reason to be afraid. And there's a reason to to look at outsiders as an upsetting of a status quo that really wasn't working for us in the first place. And a lot of that is comes from uh, signals that are that are that are sent to us by, you know, I think organizations or or institutions with with an agenda. You know, I remember um, growing up, we there was no such thing as littering. You just threw your garbage out. You know, I remember dumping garbage out of cars or, you know, what have you, because it wasn't until Lyndon, Lady Bird Johnson came along with an idea of keep America beautiful and, and, don't, and, and stop littering. When everybody stopped littering, guess what? Our cities were a little bit cleaner, and so were the right. highways and whatnot. And I think we're back to littering. I think we're back to this concept of, there's somebody, somebody else is responsible for this, not me. Somebody's job is to clean this up. Uh, some, 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 some aspect of our tax dollars will, will, will clean the side of the highway or whatnot. I, it, 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 I think that we are in a period where that brand of, uh, of uh, uh, transience is it's scary. I mean, it's like, it's like Springsteen says, there's a darkness on the edge of town, you know. Mm-hmm. At the same time, he, you, know, you, want to, you want to have an understanding of we take care of our own. But um, there is a type of, of well, I, just, I, I think that we're more afraid right now. And I'm, I'm not sure that we know what we're afraid of. Well, is part of it that we're being told by not just institutions, but leaders to be afraid. Well, yeah. I mean, that's a, the elephant in the room. Um, you know, we have a president who's got, who's got a very sharp edge to him. Does that contribute to that sense? From a guy who is a, you know, lay historian who does it, here's Daniel, uh, uh, Daniel Moynihan mm-hmm. had this great saying which was, you are entitled to your own opinion, but you are not entitled to your own facts. And that's not true anymore. Everybody has their own facts. Uh, and they cling to them. And sometimes they're <laughs> insane conspiracy theories. Uh, but other times there are interpretations of people's motives. And other times it's like, Two times two equals four. There's not an accountant in the world that doesn't understand two times two does, in fact, equal four. That's a fact. But as soon as you apply that to a measure of ozone in the air or a loss of, uh, of ice uh, in the polar ice, well, suddenly those facts, two times two doesn't equal four anymore. It means there's something else. You can question literally the math. Um, One of the institutions that, uh, that people relied on when we were kids and for some time, uh, was the news media uh, at, to deliver those facts. The, the fourth, fourth estate. estate. Exactly. And what are the four? Help me out here. There's, the, <laughs> there's government. Yes. There's the military. There's, the, there's, uh, there's uh, the religion. And then there's the press. Yeah, I, was, I grew up as a reporter 
so uh, I didn't care about the other three estates. All oh, right, I okay. Was the, I was in the well, fourth estate. Those estates that give order to our lives, that dictate our yeah. behaviors and keep us secure and establish the, uh, the contracts we have both with our neighbors, with our town, and, and with our nation and the rest of the world. You just uh, completed a film that's going to be released uh, later this month called The Post, about the Washington Post, and a particular episode in its uh, storied history uh, that went to the publication of the Pentagon Papers, secret papers that, uh, that revealed what was going on inside the government, and in many cases, uh, things that uh, were uh, hidden from the American people about uh, judgments that were made. It was very, very uh, controversial. It was a big tell me, deal. tell me about that. A big deal. Yes, it, 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 we'll keep it there. Yeah. Uh, tell me, uh, tell me about that film. Well, uh, you did with the Steven Spielberg. I did. Steven Spielberg directed it, and it's uh, really the story of how Kay Graham came to be Kay Graham, and it just happened to all publisher of the Washington publisher Post. of the Washington Post, as well as Newsweek and television stations, and it all just happened to occur in the same week. Uh, and in order to be not just the the figurehead, but also the owner and the publisher and the person who made the decisions, Catherine Graham had to decide whether or not to print stories about the Pentagon Papers. Perhaps on the threat of imprisonment. Right. Uh, the, the New York Times, who had, run, uh, who had already run these huge stories on it, was shut down, in fact. What, is it enjoined? What is the word? Enjoined, uh, yeah. They were enjoined from publishing anymore by the government, by the Justice Department. They were shut down by agents of the President of the United States. Under the auspices, it's treasonous to, to publish this report that essentially just tells what happened since 1947. I think that the, the actual report, was, it was already five years old uh, that it existed. And there wasn't secret plans in there. There wasn't battle plans. No one's lives were going to be lost right. um, by the publishing of the papers. It was just like, how did we get involved in Vietnam? It was, it was, uh, it was uh, uh, asked to be prepared by the, the Secretary of Defense, yes. um, Robert McNamara. Because he says, we're in this mess. How did we get here? And it was just the story of how we ended up in Vietnam. Uh, the Washington Post found their own copies of uh, enough of the pages in order to, con- in order to print their own uh, stories on the, Washington, uh, uh, on the Pentagon Papers. But the threat was, if we do, are we committing treason? If we do, is the Justice Department going to lock us up because we're... Uh, we are we're we're, uh, we're committing a crime uh, based on what the government was saying. So, the assault on the First Amendment was pretty basic. The assault was you could take I think you could almost take away the rest of the Constitution, but as long as you have that First Amendment, yeah. everything else could probably be defined by it: freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of the press. Yeah. Um, the reason it's the First Amendment. It, yeah, they came up with that, number one. The other stuff, they thought, oh, we should think about that, yes. too. But those, those three things alone. And you had a president of the United States who was trying to shut down, literally trying to keep from publishing. Um, Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon was. And that's what tyrants do. That's what crappy communist dictators do. 
and you know, in uh, on the, on the, in the smaller countries on the other side, uh, this is what banana republic uh, dictators do. They shut down the newspapers. They keep them from printing whatever stories it is. You know, I, I think it's interesting, David, because the questions you know, as we go on and talk about this movie, it's all about fake news. Right. There's always been fake news. Uh, when they wrote the Constitution of the United States, there were there were daily newspapers that printed, you know, one side of the story without any regard to what the truth is. They have agendas, and they've always gone out and tried to uh, to tell only their side of what the story is, or it's sometimes outright outright lie. Uh, you know, Frank Sinatra fought against fake news for crying out loud. They, between gossip and and uh, the real other the, tool, types, the, uh, the tools of delivery, though, are more sophisticated now, more pervasive, and sometimes hard to track. Well, it comes back down to uh, you, which, what facts are you going to choose? Uh, if you if you if you read about like for, I just heard this thing on National Public Radio, the history of the PizzaGate story, the Comet mm-hmm. PizzaGate story. It's madness. A phony happened. story trying to link Hillary or linking Hillary Clinton to a fictitious plot around sex trafficking. Sex trafficking of young kids. Based in a pizzeria in Washington. And it's some, some guy came up there believing that story. Two and a half million people read it. Some guy came up there with a gun. And you go back, you go back to the news organizations that, that published or broadcast or talked about that story as though it was a fact nearly resulted in a guy with a gun shooting up a bunch of people in a pizzeria in suburban Washington, D.C. That's an example of there was no fact there. <clears throat> so the idea that there, and, and you could go, look, who was the guy that ran the Chicago Tribune during World War II? Colonel McCormick? Colonel McCormick. All right. You know, he was uh, he 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 printed his own versions of the facts, and yeah. that was in well, that was a tradition in American journalism earlier. As I said, it's it's just the pervasiveness of it now, given the tools that are available with social media, yeah. the the the, the polarization on cable television and so on. But uh, this movie, what is your hope? What is Steven Spielberg's hope? Uh, in, I can't speak for Steven; he's the boss. Yes. Uh, well, uh, well, I'll take yours. Okay. Uh, the the point that it takes is, is this, is that we are not the United States of America without the First Amendment. The freedom of speech means you get to say whatever you want to say outside of screaming fire in a crowded, uh, crowded theater because people can die. That's not freedom of speech. Right. That's a crime. Freedom of assembly means you get to get together and hang out all you want to with whoever you want to. Burning down a synagogue is not going to be allowed uh, by that. But short of you know committing crimes and assaults, you get to you get to assemble with any group you want to, any religion. Freedom of the press requires the same sort of absolute that you. We live in a country where we are able to publish, and anybody gets to say whatever they want to, based on I think an individual contract that your organ has with society as a whole. If your contract is, we're going we're gonna to not only get the truth, but we're going to double and triple check it, and we're going to go a far distance so that by the time you read what our, uh, what, our, what, our, what our findings are, you can have, uh, uh, you can have a huge amount of, uh, uh, of confidence that due diligence has been done, then you can decide whether or not it's important. So it, it is a current issue, as you know. Oh, well, it's right. Because right, right the president, because the president uh, has targeted news organizations that have printed things that he finds I believe uh, inconvenient, he, I believe he calls CNN fake news. He, he did indeed. And the Washington Post. And the Washington Post. Uh, and other news organizations as well. 
how much does that concern you? Well, it, as an American, it concerns me because it's, it's monkeying around with our Constitution. <clears throat> it's relatively obvious, I think, is what, what, you know, what's, what is trying to, go, trying to go for it. When you tear down these institutions <clears throat> to a level of say, you can't believe anything that is in any of them, that raises the stock of those agenda-filled other institutions or whatnot, so that if you can't believe them, well, that means you get to believe some of the other stuff that is in these. And so what is happening is a dilution, a dilution of the great, you know, they're throwing dirt and oil into a, a you know, a bucket, of, a bucket of water, so it all becomes undrinkable after a while. And when conspiracy theorists ends up having the same amount of purchase as 27, you know, uh, uh, reporters who are trying to get to the bottom of some records that exist somewhere, trying to determine what was said about Vietnam in, in 1956 and 1947 and 1963. Well, then you're monkeying around with, I think, the, what the United States of America has been based upon, which is the great freedom to say what you want, assemble with who you want to, and read and, and be, be informed by those people that you want to turn to. Now, because we're not, you know, I think what the current administration is doing, I don't know that they're saying we have to shut them down so they don't publish anymore. That would, that would right. bring... Although the president did muse about uh, pulling the license of NBC. Which he has not, which he does not have the power to. There is some question about this antitrust suit. There is that, now. there is that. But yeah. he's doing, what is happening is something that is more subtle and more insidious and I think has more um, uh, fingerprints from other, total- other governments in the past mm-hmm. who have said, look, we can't shut them down because that will cause outrage, but we can denigrate them. We can, we can, uh, we can call them names. We can tell, we can tell people that they, those are not the facts. What's, that's what he's saying. You, uh, you got into, uh, you was, were criticized by some back at the beginning of the administration. I think... I shared your view when you said I don't. I'm not rooting for the president to fail. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I, I thought back to at the beginning of the Obama administration when I was in the administration. Uh, Rush Limbaugh said I'm rooting for the president to fail, and I thought particularly at a time of national emergency that was a terrible thing to say. And so I felt you owe the next president that same presumption. We're now ten months in. Uh, where do you think? How would you evaluate him? Well. When, when we were at, back in the golden months of last October, you know, before the election, you know, they, people stick microphones in your face and uh, mm-hmm. you think, you think Donald Trump's going to get elected? And I said, I just, I was one of the kids, says, no way, you don't, you don't elect a guy like that president of the United States. And I thought that all the way up. And I, I said something, you know, glib or flip. You know, something like, well, if that's going to happen, well, you know what? Then aliens are going to land on my front lawn and dinosaurs are going to wear capes. It was a silly answer for something that was impossible. But if Have you I, checked your lawn lately? Uh, well, if I had said, if I had said instead, if that happens, we're going to, neo-Nazis are going to hold torchlight parades in, in, uh, in uh, Charlottesville. And... Uh, Pocahontas jokes will be uh, will be said in front of the Navajo code talkers. That would have been just as as hellacious in imagination, I think, as as what we have. Do you? Uh, how? What role do you think the the entertainment industry played in uh, 
in putting Donald Trump in a position to become president of the United States? Well, I think there's an us versus them kind of thing. I think a lot of times there's preaching to the choir that, that, uh, that can come out of the, uh, the, Hollywood, uh, the Hollywood machinery. I think a lot of times stories are, you know, incredibly easy in order to, uh, in order to uh, show how good guys always win. Uh, but I think it's also part of the, you know, of uh, of, of the transcendence and the and the uh, a bit of the of the divide. Um, but, but let me just say, it's ironic to me because if not for the Apprentice and that vehicle that he had, uh, he likely wouldn't be president of the United States today. And yet, uh, he also benefits from the uh, from the disapprobation of the media of, of the uh, of the entertainment industry, I should say, Hollywood. You know, I watched the Emmys, and it was yeah. a real beatdown on, oh, yeah. on Donald yeah. Trump. And, and, my guess, and my thought was, boy, this is probably helps him with his support. Oh, it does. I, I, I think so, because at the end of the day, it's dogpiling. It's a degree of cheap shots. I will say, I, I think we have to admit this, though. Something, something profound came out of that election, and that is the rules were smashed. The rules no longer applied. You could a man, a candidate could say outrageous things, and not be penalized by uh, when it came down to the voting booth. And you can look at it as, a, it's as though some aspect of it, there was a national referendum that had had enough of this ongoing political continuum that was always say the right things, always yeah. feed your base. Never, ne- always say just glittering generalities about who, uh, whoever, uh, anybody, because you don't want to offend. And that is translated, I think, is you don't want to tell the truth about what your opinions are. Here's a guy that you can't stop telling. No, no one ever says, yeah, I wish he'd speak his mind. Yeah, yeah. And, and you, what could come out of that? Well, what good could come out of that is that on whatever other side of the, of, the, of the political divide, you'll start hearing people speak their minds. Uh, and unfortunately, it seems as though the only people who have done that so far are folks who are no longer running for office. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, who don't or aren't yeah. part of the who aren't part of the uh, that political combine that uh, you know is a business in and of itself. Show business for ugly people. You've uh, you've talked about. Uh, uh, yourself as a lay historian here. Uh, you gave an answer in an interview recently about where you think we're going, uh, and because there is a uh, there is a sense of unsettlement of un of unease about where we are in the sense that well this we've crossed some Rubicon, and we can't get back. And you quoted a, a book uh, that Jay Winnick wrote in uh, mm. about uh, uh, oh yes called uh, uh, April, April 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 eighteen sixty five yeah. And uh, tell me about that. What was the point you were making? Because it seemed to be saying you were, we should play the long game here oh. and that things will change again. Yes, yes. That what he, he puts forward is in, the, in regard to the question of slavery for 15 years, 20 years, for most of the, well, all the, you know, up until, up until 1860, the issue had become so pervasively divided that you were not allowed to speak to 
If you were pro-slavery, you could not speak to the abolitionists. And if you were abolitionists, you couldn't have anything to do. Compromise was evil. Compromise, uh, any sort of like voting process, any sort of discussion. Not that there was an awful lot of compromise you could have by keeping an entire race of people in, you know, in bondage <laughs> right. in order to make them work in the fields. Right. Um, but there had been an uncompromising quality in which it, uh, all, all of the political society had become binary. If you were a zero, there was no way you were a one. And if you were one, there was no way you were zero. That sounds a little familiar. And yeah, and what came out? What came out of it? The, you know, six years of strife and the, the. I mean, we more more people were killed and more property was destroyed in uh, the Civil War than all the other American involvements. That 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 ends up that ends up being history. What I, in all of the history that I've read, <laughs> and all of the you know the various, uh, I don't know all the various things that I have. Uh, tried to turn into nonfiction entertainment, you do come back to this other thing, which is the power of our immediate foundation. John, uh, some of this began because when I was doing Philadelphia, yes, in Philadelphia, and so I'm walking around trying to get skinny because, you know, we're playing playing somebody who's suffering from the great pandemic of our age. Um, We visited the family. We visited Independence Hall. Uh, which is a great place to be. It's in the yeah. middle city. You, know, yeah. you go, you the Liberty Bell, there it is, and you got the, 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 the Supreme Court was in this room, and the House of Representatives were in this room, and the Senate was up in this room. And the, the, the park ranger, the guy in the, literally the green uniform, the smoky bear hat, he's, we're in the, in the Senate chambers. We were the only ones there. It was a cold day, weekday. And uh, he said, and on that spot there, literally the physical spot, John Adams was sworn in as the second president of the United States. And for the first time in recorded human history, rule of a nation changed hands without, to a non-relative without bloodshed or death. And my head exploded because I hadn't put it together that yeah. way. The great thing about our democracy is not us putting people into power. It's taking people out of power. Yeah. It's removing them. Uh, Egypt. Egypt was a country that had, did not have a voice in who ran it any more than they, had, uh, they, could, uh, they could stop the sun from rising. Well, they put in one group, and what they couldn't figure out is how to take the second step was to remove the people that you want to take out of office because they had ended up a revolution. It was bad. But in America, we've done it again and again and again and again. Which I think we take for granted. We do, because even right now, it's like, oh, oh, there's there's an impeachment thing that's going around there. Now, what do you think about that? I'd say we have something better in store than that. We have an election coming up in in less than a year now. 2018 is going to send a message that is going to reverberate far much more than any, you know, Senate hearings or congressional stuff that's going to go by. That, that election in 2018 is going to prove one of two things. We will continue along and we will have the government we deserve. Or a lot of people are going to show up and be motivated to vote in order to send out the waves and say, we are not satisfied with the way things are going right now. And... The great, you go to any other nation in the world and you find out that 
in the United States, how much of our electorate turns out to vote in any given year? Yeah. 40%? Yeah. Well, yeah. More in a presidential race. But More yeah. in a presidential right. race, but the real important. So if there is a turnout that says we're not satisfied with this, hey, baby, that, that, that's, even, that's even better than going through the machinations. Of, well, the other thing, and I've said this, is I think uh, hey, impeachment, impeachment is, uh, is a tool that should be used very carefully because if it becomes commonplace to say, I dislike who's in office, so we're just going to impeach them. And I understand there are provocations, but there is a system in place. There are people who are investigating things. They will either lead to something or they won't. But if it becomes a casual tool... Yeah, I think it's, a, it, it's, bad. it's bad for the country in the long run. And it's one more institution that will be abused, you know. So, uh, the, you know, I, now we can plan, plan uh, there are plenty of people who will debate both of us uh, on this point. Uh, well, if crimes have been committed, yeah, I get it. But, you know, right. we don't have to, there's a, there, it's a marathon. There's a longer faith that, uh, that we can have. And everything goes in spurts, you know, stops and starts. Sometimes you take one step forward, two steps back, but other times you take one step back and two steps forward, and that means you just keep moving forward a little bit. I have to ask you that the, uh, that the uh, about investigative reporting, because it's also shining a bright light in the corners of other corridors of power, and Hollywood has come under that scrutiny. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've seen some real giants of, of your industry, Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, and others, uh, who have been, uh, who have been, uh, I guess exposed is the wrong word, but who have been uh, identified as sexual harassers, sexual abusers, or at least there are allegations of yeah, that. Yeah, allegations, they're called uh, predators. Allegations, predators, predators. Yeah. predators. Uh, how, uh, Pervasive is that in 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 the industry itself, and how complicit is everyone who has been around it all these years and and not said anything? About well, that's a good question. I mean, uh, the anybody who had like re- very specific knowledge of what was going on, that they'll have to answer questions about you know how complicit were they. Um, you saw a lot of stars, people you've acted with. Rightly so. Came, yeah, but they came forward after these very brave women who were not prominent and who were not powerful told their stories to the New York Times, told them to Ronan Farrow yeah, yeah, in yeah, New yeah, Yorker. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> there are, I think there's a number of reasons people go into this line of work that I'm in, uh, essentially trying to come up with stories that people will pay to see. One is because it's less, just ridiculous amounts of fun. Uh, two is if you can make it stick, it can be a pretty good living, you know, and you get to travel the world and see interesting things. Some people do it for power. They just want to have a degree of power because that's the thing that gives them credence. It's something, you know, it's a, on one hand, it's a, a, a parking space with your name on it, uh, and to take it to another extreme, it's the ability uh, to beat up on underlings and say things like, so you want a job? You want to keep your job? Well, then you're going to have to fulfill these other demands I have on you that are, uh, that are of a sexual nature. That is pure harassment. It's, a, you know, to the, to the degree of assault. There are people like that, without a doubt, in Hollywood. I don't think it is as... It's, it's not common core, but without a doubt, it's widespread. 
because human nature comes down to a lot of times those people in power have it for that very that 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 ability that access in order to uh, in order to be a sexual predator. Well, we've seen it in politics. Uh, well, it's we've everywhere. Seen it in business, but you know, part of it also is goes like, look, we are, in a lot of ways, all of us are. We all left town and joined the circus, and the circus is glamorous in a lot of ways. And uh, there is there is camaraderie, and there is you know there is there is sex, and there's attraction, and there's boyfriends and girlfriends, and there's flirting, and that's always been part of it. There's onset affairs. There's no law against right. that. But this goes far beyond. This that. goes much farther beyond that because it ends up being a swaying of influence, and it becomes part of. The marketplace. It becomes when it is inherent into the workforce that you join, that you have to succumb to a degree of sexual harassment in order to keep your job. Uh, that when that happens, the only thing you can you can say is number one. Uh, I hope the victims are come out and, and, and tell all sorts of stories, everything, tell the truth about what goes on, and that the repercussions land exactly as they should. Well, uh, uh, you, first of all, were you surprised by some of these revelations? Uh, sur- I'm surprised by the 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 uh, um, the overtness of it. Yeah, sure. Yes, absolutely. Am I surprised at some of the personalities involved? Uh, not Harvey. Mm-hmm. You know, he had a he had a he had a way of doing business and you know a, a zero sum game negotiation stuff that would would not make you surprised to have him be one of those kind of guys that does that in the workplace. Um, others are just like, well, I you know. There's a there's a time and place for decorum and ethics, and you blew it. You know there there's that as well. Do you think that um, there'll be scripts written about this, about these women who lived in terror, or will Hollywood protect itself from that? Oh no, I think I think there's going to be quite a bit that's going to come out about it. And uh, here the, here's what's going to be an interesting test: is is that going to be salacious, titillating, shocking? outrageous in order to draw viewers or is it going to be human and realistic and authentic in its details in order to say what happened in some ways you can already see you know the I, i'm sure there's already s- stories in development that are going to be based on the harvey weinstein or whatever and is that going to be as what's the word i'm looking for is that going to be as pure an examination of the theme as Somebody else taking along and saying, "Well, let's fictionalize it and turn it into something so that we're not we're not necessarily dealing with the specifics of any one person, but can get down to the specifics of uh, what it really did to uh, the human beings." Involved. Do you think films like that, or let's talk about Philadelphia, which sure. was a, a brave film in 1993? Uh, do you think they have the uh, the power to change things? Do you think Philadelphia hastened? Uh, an understanding of age. I think it did both in what it accomplished and what it failed to accomplish. Uh, the the big the big the throwing deep in the end zone on Philadelphia was that it was going to compete in the open marketplace. You can make a small movie for four hundred thousand dollars, and you can play in every film festival in the world, and only only sixty two thousand people will see it. It will be a profoundly good movie to them. But when you're going out and you're going to compete in your local marketplace for a broad audience to come in and deal with something that is ripped, kind of ripped right out of today's headlines, um, you, have to, you have to do it in a manner that it's going to be somehow so approachable, authentic, and glamorous 
in order to attract an audience who simply wants to be entertained. If they become enlightened at the same time, uh, good for you. But there's throughout all of American history, and which I have said, a gentleman's agreement with Gregory Peck in 1952 was about anti-Semitism that no one had ever touched before. The best years of our lives was about the emptiness that an entire generation faced when they came back from the war. And how in the world do they get on with that? You can go, the grapes of wrath. I mean, even though the ending was absolutely nothing like uh, John Steinbeck wrote, it ended up being uh, entering into the national consciousness and changing that consciousness because you could not argue with the theme that was, it was examining. And uh, uh, Hollywood will do that all the time. It won't always land on it. It won't always make it happen. It might cop out periodically, but there's always going to be something coming down the pike that is meant to, to do it. The difference now is it might be on... You know, you might be on a streaming service uh, as opposed to playing in your local cinema because the, uh, you know, <laughs> the superheroes are filling up all the cinemas. Do you, uh, uh, do you feel that uh, when you look at roles, do you look, for, do you look for scripts? Are you excited by scripts that have that power that might, or do you just look no, at them? No, there's an awful lot of, there's an awful like preaching to the choir. There's an awful lot of, uh, of stories that people want to tell, and there's no surprise in it. And they're kind of like polemics, if I'm using the word polemic. Yeah, right. right. Uh-huh. They're just kind of like treatises on something, and uh, uh, there's nothing new, there's nothing unique. And I, I find them kind of, uh, a lot of times, they're void of the gray areas of, of human behavior. Um, there's always a, oftentimes there's a specific bad guy and there's a specific good guy. And a lot of times there are no good guys or bad guys. They're just people who are poorly motivated or wrong. Uh, 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 but the, I, the things I look for is, is, I was very lucky because of the one of the, when I went to Cleveland for the first year, um, we, uh, I held a torch, or maybe it was a spear, during the entire scene of Hamlet's uh, advice to the players. So every night I heard, speak the speech, I pray you, as I pronounce it to you, trippingly over the tongue. And inside that, he says, your job is to hold the mirror up to nature. It means you have to reflect back true human behavior, how we think, how we act, and the great paradoxes that are in all of our decisions. That is what I seek out in whatever it is I decide to go on and do, even, even if you're, you know, searching for the Da Vinci Code or, you know, uh, trying to determine who's an angel. And who's yeah, I kind of, I think in, uh, in your industry as well as in politics where I worked for all those years, authenticity means so much. The ability to be true, as you suggest, uh, is almost more important than, than anything else. Right, and... How true is your average photo op in politics in which bales of hay have been realistically arranged in front of a barn on a riser with TV lights on it and a collection of citizens are put in the back and they're all in different dress and they all have that and someone comes on and talks about their intense desire to help the American family. So I'm, I'm going to ask you, is that a leading question? No, no, I'm, a leading question I'm just saying there? the stage. No, you're right. No, no, no. But but that doesn't mean that the people who ultimately succeed are the people who break through that and can make a real connection. Well, right. It, it ends up being of what are you saying and what is uh, what is what what is actually the authentic message that you're trying what is the authentic change you're trying to bring what is the enlightenment that you're and for what what i do what are you actually what are we actually trying to 
you know, tell, the, the, tell an, any audience that comes in and watches a movie. You know, you want them to feel as though they got their money's worth. That's just business. That's the corporate side of it. But the artistic side of it is you want, the, you want them to feel as though they were a part of something much larger than themselves and have a slightly new perspective on life as we know it. Whether they're seeing a movie that was, takes place in, you know, the 1700s or you're seeing a movie that took place in 1971. Well, I will say that uh, polling has gotten a bad rap. Uh, so I tell you this advisedly, but, uh, you know, every poll I look at says Tom Hanks is the most trusted. Tom Hanks is the most uh, uh, beloved and popular uh, actor. So, Isn't that right, guys? Give me, give me a big huzzah. Bro. <laughs> huzzah. So you must be They're doing, not allowed so, to so say you, You've made that connection for a very long time, and uh, that's an enormous accomplishment. Well, I don't discount that. I, 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 I don't, I don't, that, that actually, that says something that is, I, uh, that I, this is the way I take it, is that um, my, my countenance, if I should be so bold, uh, uh, matches my choices. You know, I think, yeah. I, I think that's, that when you get to this point where you realize you're a bit of a commodity, and I realize I am, you know, from a business perspective and the people who want me to do business with them, they're, I, I understand I'm bringing into it the sum of everything I've ever done, everything I've ever said, yeah. uh, any reaction I, any audience has ever had. And so probably don't screw it up now. One, don't screw it up. But at the same time, you must stretch it somehow. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, all you are is a bottle of Coca-Cola. Right. You need to provide some other brand of nourishment and healthiness. And so if those kind of very flattering polls that people say, they say, what, what better thing could you hear about yourself other than, hey, I trust you. Yes. That's, uh, that's about the highest praise you can get from anybody. And I... You know, there's, I got to tell you, there's times I've lied through my teeth, uh, sometimes in promoting movies that even I knew weren't any good. <laughs> but you can still get into that, an understanding of sometimes you take a shot, sometimes you don't. But, you know, countenance matching up with the, the, the quality of the choices you make, um, that's, uh, man, outside of longevity, uh, that's the only standard you can hold yourself to. Well, Tom Hanks, it's pleasure to be with I'm you. I'm exhausted, David. Have I pontificated <laughs> enough? We're going we're gonna to give you a rest. No, it's, it's really so good to be with you, and I Oh, thank you. I, I enjoyed talking to you. <laughs> and I've got to get my memorabilia back. <laughs> so punctuation wasn't a big thing here. No, and that, and here's <laughs> what's scary. My handwriting is just as messy as my dad's is, which is why... Why all the typewriters? Uh huh. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, should we? Can we? Yeah, let's see them. Let's do it. Let's. Wait, see you want to go downstairs to see them? Where are they? Where are well, we? I'll, I'll take it downstairs. My goodness. This is the the Remington Quiet Writer, which is one of the greatest typewriters in the world, and she uh, uh, she paints, and this was what. This, this is awesome. So she knows what typewriters mean to you. Yeah. So one day she just said anonymously, "What's what's the what's one of the best typewriters?" And I said, <laughs> You know, I got, I got a, I got a, the quiet writer's a great typewriter. Next thing I know, she painted all of these. So. What was the story in your book in which the woman bought the typewriter? Yeah, I, and that actually is how I got my first decent typewriter. I, I had a piece of junk typewriter that, uh, you know, 1970s plastic, and I took it in to get it serviced at the local typewriter business machine, and the guy wouldn't touch it. He said, this is a toy. 
and I walked out of there with a Hermes 2000 typewriter <laughs> that was a true machine. But he yelled at me. He said, I'm not, this is a toy. He yelled, I'm sorry. Well, I, he sold it to me for $50 plus um, a $5 refund for my piece of junk typewriter that he yeah. said, I'm just going to throw it away. So tell me, I mean, you already asserted that it is some uh, reflection of insanity, but what is it about these that cause you to collect them? They held me in, in thrall because they are actually beautiful objects of engineering and art and design that are meant to do one thing and one thing only for as long as they exist on the planet Earth. I'll, we'll, just, we'll just pick, any, we'll just pick any, anyone out. Here is a... Uh, okay, this is a royal. Um, look at it. Um, this was probably made sometime in the 1950s. Just, just pick it up. Just pick that up. Now that's half. Yeah, it right? is. Yeah, that's yeah, half. yeah, yeah. This is meant... Even though it's portable, this is meant to sit on your desk for the next 40 years, and you can do anything from... Uh, is there a piece of paper around? Find something, anything. There's one. Here we go. This, first of all, this machine tells the truth, and it also tells lies. It can change the world for the good or the better. Listen to that. See that? See that? Hear that report? Now, the only thing you can do on this is record your thoughts. That's the, only, that's the only thing that it's good for. It's the only thing that it's meant for. But if you're going to say, I love you to somebody, it's as permanent as though it was going to be carved in stone. It's because you're, not, you're, not, you're actually stamping the ink into the fibers of the paper. You're not applying it. So uh, you illustrate your book with... Photos, I presume, of some of these yeah, yeah. typewriters, and the and, and you know, I said uh, to you earlier that uh, it's uh, so many of your projects are sort of these sepia tone <laughs> memories of another time, mm-hmm. and it seems to me the, these are as well. I started, by the way, as a reporter when we still used typewriters and t- typed on carbon books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I have a fondness for them myself, but. Um, you have a fondness for an era. You have a, f- a fondness for a time. Uh, I think I have a fondness for a limited technology that was closed-ended. You know, the, a clock was meant to do only one thing, tell you the time. A camera did one thing. It took a photograph of you. Uh, I, listen, I, I, I am as much as enmeshed in my iPhone as much as possible, but of late... I removed every game from it. I've taken off every news uh, update service of it. I've gotten rid of all sorts of stuff that sends me information that I just check as opposed to read. Yeah. And it's actually made my life a little bit, uh, a little bit more uh, cohesive. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I choose when I'm going to become uh, in, uh, involved and informed as opposed to being part of some algorithm that says, uh, hey, we got your information, so we're going to send you this. You know, one of my big concerns is that this technology is churning so fast that we can't get our arms around the implications of it all. We can't get our arms around what it's doing to our ability to attend. Uh, you know, my son said to me the other day, uh, Actually, you know, it's supposed to build community, but it makes you very lonely. 
I was talking to a reporter on a podcast, and we were talking about this very thing, and she said her 14-year-old son went to spend the night at somebody's house because they were going to watch an old movie. And he came home early. And she said, what happened? I thought you were going to watch a movie. He said, we did, but everybody was on their phone. Uh-huh. So here's six, six you know, teenagers who aren't even involved in the communal uh, uh, experience of watching a movie together because they're, they're busy. Now listen, it's, is it a bad thing or is it good? I have no idea, but it is altering the way we are. I think it's are. both, yeah. but I don't think we fully understand uh, either entirely. You know, We haven't explored the, the, the range of things that it can make happen, but we haven't also explored the range of things that it's doing to us. And it's coming faster and faster. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to start collecting typewriters, too. Hey, here, I'll give you one right now. Here, <laughs> take, take, take this one. Because you see, I have two, I'm serious. Take this typewriter. I have too many that I need to, I need to get rid of. You, uh, we talked earlier about uh, celebrity and Trump and TV. Uh, and uh, it, it struck me that I should, uh, uh, should ask you... Um, is, if this is a healthy thing, the, the, the sort of crossing of, of celebrity and politics. Uh, I mean, he was a television star. Yeah. And is that, uh, is that the appropriate launching pad for, uh, for, for a career in public life? It seems to have worked this one time, you know. I think Would it work again? And is that going to be the future? Uh, I, well, I think it's uh, looking at the long haul. I think you got to you got to look at some other uh, other facilities, other 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 realities of what the consequences of it all in. If good stuff happens, then perhaps yes. I, as we were talking about, you know, whatever that that shift was, is that it did break an awful lot of the assumed um, constructions that we had put around about going into public service. I think that there are a bunch of really smart guys who are men and women who have never been in politics that would make great great politicians that could get into the the hierarchy and uh, and establish you know questions of policy and uh, and sort of like, and uh, and philosophy you've probably seen the uh Stuff written and said about well, why don't we run Tom Hanks yeah, for president? Yeah, well, that's that's uh, that's. How a, would you like to play that role? Uh, I don't even want to play the president of the United States, <laughs> much less be the president of the United could States. Could you play this president of the United States? Oh, I think a, a lot of people could. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How uh, would you play him? Uh, I would probably play him as a very incurious man, uh, and I, I, I do it in, in, in interpretation more so than incurious in and. Uh, an unimaginative guy uh, who uh, who doesn't see much beyond uh, the next uh, forty eight hours. Here, let's come this way because they're they're asking for delivery of things. <laughs> they're all here, Tom. Yeah, they're great, huh? Oh, hey guys, come on in, enjoy your lunch. Do you have? Can you get a shot of this? Do you know what this is? It looks to be a television set. Not just any television set. This is a communist television set. This uh, was on the set of um, uh, Bridge of Spies. Ah. It doesn't, doesn't necessarily work, but if you were in... E- there was a time in East Germany where East Germany's active economy was actually better than Great Britain's in the 1950s because it was so bolstered by the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And they had, they had a burgeoning consumer... Electronics consumer uh, uh, appliance um, 
manufacturing base. And so an awful lot of East Germans had really good TVs, and this was... This was uh, one of them. Never make a movie with Steven Spielberg and said, hey, man, this is a good, yeah, look at this little communist TV. That looks like it's a lot of fun. Uh, next thing you know, it's being delivered to your house. <laughs> so this was, you know, you could, you could make your own records uh, on, on wow. tape. And you could have, uh, you know, look at this old microphone, some old oh, headphones. This is quite this, a ring. No, this was a big deal. I didn't even know this stuff was in here. I'm discovering it right, right now. Shall we? Shall we put this on and see what it says? <laughs> Maybe we should. It could be Crucia. Uh, uh, so, so you mentioned Bridge of Spies. Uh, you've done uh, so many of these sort of historical pieces, biopics. Are you drawn to those? Do you, do you find those? Uh, uh, only, w- only when they're uh, mis- mysterious and, and create something brand new. And when there is a... Uh, when there's a dynamic to the character that I think speaks greater than the nostalgia for the period. Uh, the thing about um, uh, uh, Donovan was he, you know, he was... The lawyer you... The lawyer I played who, who, who negotiated yeah. the release of, uh, of a couple of people, uh, Francis Gary Powers. And, yes, and, 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 and there was actually another one too, as well. Um, he loved the concept of a negotiation in which everybody wins. So his, 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 he, and he loved negotiation. He was an insurance yeah. lawyer. But what he loved was is when both sides felt as though they got exactly what they wanted. That was he was the king of. And that's how he actually sprung those guys, uh, those guys loose. He got to the point where he made sure that everybody won something as opposed to a zero-sum game in which you lose, I win. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, the essence of, of negotiation. That's an art that seems to be uh, lost a little bit in our that's, public uh, life. That's actually the, uh, uh, a good, uh, one of the great arts of making a deal. Yeah, yeah. Nobody gets everything that they want. Uh, so when, you, when Spielberg calls and says, I want to do this project, do you... If it's Spielberg, do you just say, I'm in? Or oh, no, you? no. He, and he's, he never does that. It's always, I'm going to send you this thing that I'm excited about. And then I read it, and I say, well, this is kind of exciting. What do you think? And then there's all sorts of changes that are going to go into it. It's always bigger than the first thing that you read and how, how you're going to imagine it. And be. how do you get into these characters? I mean, what kind of research do you do? I read everything that is possible to read. I see everything that might exist on, on videotape. Uh, and then I do an awful lot of other research about the era and the specifics. For example, in Bridge of Spies, here's, here's, the, here's a lady looking over the Berlin Wall yeah. that was first put up uh, at, her, at her relatives. Um, one of the things uh, I read, I, Donovan wrote quite a bit. Uh, he wrote about the six days that he spent in Berlin on this negotiation, and he was hampered by a severe cold, horrible cold which we put into the movie. It wasn't in the script. And he also, when he was held by the uh, border police, he had to look at a bunch of uh, folders in various languages, flyers in various languages, that talked about the, the socialist paradise for the workers that was, uh, was East Germany. So we put, we put one of those into the, into the movie as well. Uh, ben Bradley, uh, you know, these people are known. I mean, Ben Bradley hasn't been gone that long. Mm-hmm. A lot of people know him. A lot of people work for him, with him. He was an icon of Washington pillar of Washington. Um, does it make it harder 
when people know these people, I mean, does it put more pressure on you? I, I, it is a it is a pressure, um, but we set out in order to obey a couple of rules. I, it, the, like I played Richard Phillips, um, who was yes. kidnapped by yes. Somali pirates. Captain put, Phillips. Captain, uh, yes, and, and Sully Sullenberger and Charlie Wilson, the congressman when he was alive. And then you have a meeting with them and you have to say to them, look, in this movie, I'm going to say things you never said and do things you never did. And I'm going to be places you never were. Despite those handicaps, I wanted to be as realistic as possible. So walk me through the decision-making process or walk me through some of the other uh, unseen uh, pressures that we might not be able to put into the movie, but I will be able to carry a, uh, around with me in my pocket. And... If you're aiming out in order to not alter the motivations every, uh, of anybody or the, to, a, to a ridiculous degree for the sake of dramatic purposes, the order of events, well, then you can, you can live up to, I think, the, the, the truth of is if you're making a movie about something that really happened for good or for bad, it becomes a document. It becomes a version of events that people will turn to as being an authoritative source of this moment of history. And you can't, you can't play fast and loose with that reality. You actually have to adhere as close as you can to, uh, to uh, the facts. I was in the White House, by the way, when the president had to decide, he had 10 minutes to decide whether to authorize the SEALs to take a shot. And they said, Mr. President, we're on water. We think we can get the pirates, but we may end up killing him. Yeah. And you've got 10 minutes to decide before we lose our sight line. It was uh, that's those kind of days are when it becomes very, very real mm-hmm. when you're when you're working there. L- let me ask you um, about your peers, uh, acting peers. You with Meryl Streep in this movie, you know, who's probably if, if you are uh, the most uh, decorated male actor, she would be uh, she would be a peer of yours. You, you once said uh, that. Uh, there were people who you see act, and you say, "Gee, I wish I could be yeah, I can't do that them. good." I can't touch them. Yeah. They're, they're... Who are those people? I mean, who? who, who... Well, when I when I was when I was young, I mean, there's always the big movie stars that are going on. You just admire them just because they're able to do it and and do it so you know cohesively. Um, then, if you uh, when I was young, Robert Duvall uh, was a huge influence on me because I had no knowledge of who he is. He was a great, magnificent mystery to it. And if you're looking at the people who do it today without, um, without giving up uh, a lot of the, the, the reality of who, he, who they are, I'm, uh, um, uh, there's so many women right now that are fantastic. I'm having a cranial plate shift, uh, uh, like, uh, like uh, uh, Brie Larson and... Uh, uh, and as far as guys, I think one of the worst things that has happened to the to the the future of, his, of cinema history is Daniel Day Lewis deciding to uh, he's had enough because that that man achieved something in his uh, in his in his full immersion into it that uh, uh, it, it's a shame that he's not going to be able to do it some more. Yeah. Great to be with you. Pleasure. Glad you're doing it some more. Well, I, you know, I, they, I, they, you know it's a good job, man. Yeah. I'm going to try. Good work if you if can If they get keep it, asking. Man. Well, I, it's kind of like, you know, if, if I can just transfer to the American League and be a DH, I think I can get a couple of more, uh, get, get more seasons out of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you can play in both leagues right now. Oh, so. Thank you. Yeah. Good to be with Enjoy you. Enjoy talking. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. 
For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.